Last week I wrote about one of John Gottman's books, Why Marriages Succeed and Fail, and How You Can Make Yours Last. The book lays out most of his fundamental ideas about marriage, including the four horsemen of the apocalypse, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, and the different kinds of stable couples. If you're hearing about all this for the first time, it's probably worth reading that article first. This week, I'll talk about his other, more prescriptive book called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. The principles he shares are based on the extensive research that he's done on couples in his love lab in Seattle, Washington. I'm mentioning this to signal the idea that it's not based on his hunches, but on well-researched data. Before we get into that, let's take another look at how Godman predicts divorce. The Signs Last week I explained that Godman can predict with over 91% accuracy whether a couple would stay together long term. Here are the signs he looks for. Number one, harsh startup. How a conversation begins often predicts how it is going to end. So if someone starts a discussion with criticism, blame, sarcasm, or accusations, it likely won't end well. Number two, the four horsemen. There's more detail on this in the previous article. Godman looks for these four horsemen in the couple's arguments. Number three, flooding. If either partner gets psychologically or emotionally overwhelmed during the argument, it doesn't bode well. It's worse if the other doesn't pick up on this and drags it on while the counterpart is now flooded. Number four, body language. Crossed arms, leaning back from each other, not making eye contact, and not mirroring each other's movements. These are all signs that things aren't going in a good direction. Number five, failed repair attempts. When tension rises in a conflict, sometimes a partner will attempt to de-escalate with anything, a silly comment, humor, or even directly saying we need to take a step back and cool down. Those are called repair attempts. They help to prevent emotional flooding. If those attempts don't work to de-escalate the situation, it is a bad sign. Number six, bad memories. Things were not always bad. The problem is that when bad things are happening, couples rewrite the past negatively, forgetting all the good memories and remembering all the bad ones. They can't seem to remember that earlier magic, even when they are asked how they met, about their wedding day or other special moments. Everything is negative. Number seven, withdrawal. When one partner is distant, calm, and completely emotionally disengaged during arguments, that's a sign that the end is near. Is there anything a couple can do to fix things at this point? Yes, Godman gives seven principles. The seven principles are not about focusing on these areas of negativity or difficulty. Rather, each of them builds trust and friendship, which is the bedrock of successful relationships. The seven principles for making relationships work. Most relationship advice focuses on the same old pointers better conflict resolution, and communication skills. According to Gottman, getting couples to disagree more nicely might reduce the stress levels while they argue, but frequently it's not enough to revitalize marriages that are on the rocks. In fact, after studying many couples whose relationships made it through troubled times, he realized that they were never perfect unions. They still had significant differences in temperament, interests, and family values. They had frequent conflicts, they argued over money, work, housekeeping, sex, 
and in-laws as much as the failed couples. Here's a quote from the book. At the heart of the seven principles approach is the simple truth that happy marriages are based on a deep friendship. By this, I mean a mutual respect for and enjoyment of each other's company. These couples tend to know each other intimately. They are well-versed in each other's likes, dislikes, personality quirks, hopes, and dreams. They have an abiding regard for each other and express this fondness not just in the big ways, but through small gestures, day in and day out. End quote. Gottman's principles focus on increasing the number of positive interactions that happen in a relationship. This is because it discovered you need to load up several positive interactions to counteract the effects of one negative interaction. In fact, there's a magic number here. According to the research, you need five positive interactions for every negative interaction. Here are the principles. Number one, enhance your love maps. Know your partner better. Know what they like, who they like to talk to at work, what they do all day, what their passions are, and what their history is. Good couples are intimately familiar with their partner's world, which makes them able to weather the storms when they arise. With how busy life is these days, I think this is one area that needs to be watched closely. Otherwise, we'll discover that we've been estranged from our partners. So even if it's not your favorite thing, Teach yourself to take interest in the things your partner loves. You may not care about spoken word poetry, but if that's what your partner loves, you lose nothing by learning it enough to have a stimulating conversation with them about it. If you don't know where to start with learning it, ask them to teach you. I'm sure they'd love that and it will create an opportunity for you to bond. Here's another quote from the book. Although he's not religious, he accompanies her to church each Sunday because it's important to her. And although she's not crazy about spending a lot of time with their relatives, she has pursued a friendship with Nathaniel's mother and sisters because family matters to him. If all of this sounds humdrum or unromantic, it's anything but. In small but important ways, Olivia and Nathaniel are maintaining the relationship that is the foundation of their love. As a result, they have a marriage that is far more passionate than do couples who punctuate their lives together with romantic vacations, lavish anniversary gifts, but have fallen out of touch in their daily lives. End quote. It should go without saying that learning to relate to your partner's interests and even learning to love them will improve your friendship overall. And couples who are good friends experience a lot of positive sentiment override. Their positive thoughts about each other and their marriage are so pervasive that they tend to supersede their negative feelings. Therefore, it takes a much more significant conflict to cause them to lose their equilibrium. I'm not suggesting that you should know about football as much as their Sunday social football teammates, but each interest of theirs that you choose to ignore is a connection opportunity missed. And it's one area of the love map of your relationship that you've chosen to be unfamiliar with. Number two, nurture fondness and admiration. You need to cherish each other and honor what is good and true and positive about your partner. After all, you chose them for many positive reasons. Try to remember those. The absolute foundation of all relationships is fondness and admiration. And if you don't have those, the relationship will not make it. Let's look at what the book says. Fondness and admiration 
are one are two of the most crucial elements in a rewarding and long-lasting romance. Although happily married couples may feel driven to destruction at times by their partner's personality flaws, they still feel that the person they married is worthy of honor and respect. They cherish each other, which is critical to keeping their sound relationship house intact, preventing betrayal. If fondness and admiration are completely missing, reviving the relationship is impossible. End quote. It's very easy to forget or stop noticing your partner's good qualities, especially if you've been together for a long time. When you forget these, the negatives will start to seem glaring, and if you're not careful after a while, that's all you'll see. So talk about your partner's good qualities. Tell them what you like about them. Compliment them often. When they do something that you particularly love, tell them about it. Reminisce on your past how you met, what you felt on your first date, and what you told your friends when you first realized that you loved this person. Even long-buried positive feelings can be exhumed simply by thinking and talking about them. This will help you keep that fundamental sense that your partner is worthy of being respected and loved. You'll need this during the storms of life. Finally, it's important to tell them about these things you love about them in private. But it is also important to tell them in public. Make your fondness and admiration publicly known. No one wants to be loved behind closed doors only. Number three, turn towards each other instead of away. A rare commodity in today's world is attention. Focus your attention on your partner when they make a bid for your attention. Listen without distraction, be helpful and be present. Sometimes bids for attention are wrapped up in anger or blame. When this happens, focus on the ask and not the negativity. Your attention is the most precious thing that you can give to someone. I get particularly irritated when I'm trying to get my partner's attention and they listen while on their phone or they turn to me while keeping their phone in their hand, the screen on, ready to scroll to the next post in the feed. That irritation is heightened if they immediately reach for their phone the moment I stop talking. I know I'm overly sensitive because I've put a lot of attention into making sure I put my phone away during any kind of quality time. So I feel like I deserve that in return, especially in the moments when I clearly need my partner to be fully present with me. Here's another quote from the book. In marriage, couples are always making what I call beads for each other's attention, affection, humor, or support. Beads can be as minor as asking for a back rub or as significant as seeking help in carrying the burden when an aging parent is ill. The partner responds to each bid by turning towards the spouse or turning away. A tendency to turn towards your spouse is the basis of trust, emotional connection, passion, and a satisfying sex life. Comical as it may sound, romance strengthened in the supermarket aisle when your partner asks, are we out of butter? And you answer, I don't know, let me go get some just in case instead of shrugging apathetically. It grows when you know your spouse is having a bad day at work and you take a few seconds out of your schedule to send him an encouraging text. In all of these instances, partners are making a choice to turn toward each other rather than away. If you ignore your partner's pleas for attention, eventually they'll stop asking. Number four, let your partner influence you. This is also called power sharing. Let your partner's feelings, thoughts, ideas influence your decisions. Cooperate and yield. Marriage should be a partnership, not a dictatorship. According to Gottman, 
this is a problem that's most prevalent in men than in women. If you're in a relationship and you're only looking out for what matters to you, regardless of how it affects anyone else, then you need to reconsider that if you want your relationship to survive. Being in a relationship comes with sacrificing some of what you want to make space for what your partner wants. That's how you make a life together. And that's how you ensure your lives grow in the same direction. A marriage can't work unless both parties honor and respect each other. This is true regardless of your belief system. Number five, solve your solvable problems. Every relationship is a union of individuals who bring to it their own opinions, personality quirks and values. All conflicts and relationships fall into one of two categories. Either they can be solved or they are perpetual, which means they will be a part of your lives forever in some form or another. Once you are able to identify and define your various disagreements, you'll be able to customize your coping strategies depending on which of these two types of conflicts you're having. Godman's research reveals that 69% of a couple's problems are perpetual. You want to have a baby, but your partner says he's not ready yet and doesn't know when he'll be ready. She wants sex far more frequently than he does. He's very lax about housework and rarely does his share until she nags, which makes him angry. Despite these perpetual differences, couples can remain satisfied with their relationships if they learn to deal with their unmovable problems in a way that doesn't make them overwhelming. One solution to perpetual problems is to learn to live with them and approach them with good humor. Here's another quote. At times, it gets better. On occasion, it gets worse. But because, you, because they keep acknowledging the problem and talking about it, they prevent it from overwhelming their relationship. These couples intuitively understand that some difficulties are inevitable. Much the way chronic physical ailments are unavoidable as you get older, they are like a trick knee, a bad back, an irritable bowel, or tennis elbow. We may not enjoy having these problems, but we're able to cope by avoiding situations that worsen them and by developing strategies and routines that help ease them, end quote. The remaining 31% are solvable problems. Work to solve these through compromise. Godman gives a process of solving these, which includes softening your startup, not including blame, criticism, or contempt, making some repair attempts, de-escalating away from emotional flooding and compromising by finding common emotional ground. Number six, overcoming gridlock. Gridlock occurs with problems that haven't been solved well and have hardened into uncomfortable sore spots. This mostly happens with perpetual problems which center around fundamental differences in personality or lifestyle needs. For example, we have what I believe to be a perpetual problem around how we spend leisure time. I like to be out and about around people, and I gladly welcome any opportunity to do so without batting an eye. My wife is a homebody. She will take any opportunity to be at home relaxing and watching TV. So whenever we go out somewhere, I get on edge at some point because I'm enjoying and would love to stick around till the end. But I know I'll be getting a text soon about going home. And when we're home, anytime we have some free time, I'm sure she gets similar anxiety knowing I'll come saying, let's go outside for a walk or I'll tell her of some invitation that I just accepted somewhere. 
Now, I can obviously go out on my own and she can also relax at home on her own. The problem is that both of us don't want to be doing these things alone and we'd rather do them with each other. Many times greedlock happens when you have aspirations, desires and dreams that have not been acknowledged or respected by your partner. So try to uncover those dreams with respectful and open questions and curiosity. Understand those differences so that you won't continually bash your heads in situations where you can't find a satisfying compromise for. You'll find it easier to accept them and even have some inside jokes around them. Perpetual problems are like an allergy. They're not going away, but you can treat them so that they don't ruin your life. Number seven, create shared meaning. Here's a quote from the book. We got along okay and really loved each other, but I didn't feel that connected to Kevin. It was like we were roommates who made love. Helen, a devout feminist, had always prided herself on her independence. At first, she thought it was great that she and Kevin had their own lives, separate careers, interests, and friends. But the longer they were married, and especially after they had children, the more she felt something was lacking. She didn't want to give up her strong sense of individual identity, but she wanted more from her marriage. After attending our workshop, she realized what it was. She wanted to feel more like she and Kevin were a family. Sometimes what is missing is a sense of shared meaning. People are happiest when they have meaning in their lives. Relationship are no, relationships are no different. In addition to everything else, relationships also have a dimension that has to do with creating an inner life together. A culture rich with symbols and rituals and an appreciation for your roles and goals that link you and that lead you to understand who you are as a couple. Without that, you may feel lost like your happy relationship isn't going anywhere. So how do you create shared meaning? Develop shared couple rituals, something that you do together and that holds meaning for the two of you. Be supportive of each other's roles. Discuss shared goals and understand the values and symbols that uniquely define your relationship. We usually think of culture in terms of large ethnic groups, but culture can also be created by just two people who have agreed to share their lives. Each couple can create its own microculture, and like other cultures, this small culture can have its own customs, like Saturday dinner out, rituals, like watching every Marvel movie together regardless of circumstance, and myths, like the stories the couple tell themselves, whether true or false or embellished, that explain their sense of what their relationship is like and what it means to be part of it. Deve developing a shared culture doesn't mean you are aligned on everything. Instead, it's about creating a mashup that honors and incorporates each other's dreams, and it is flexible enough to grow as you grow. When a relationship has this shared sense of meaning, conflicts will be much less intense and perpetual problems less likely to lead to gridlock. Final thoughts. It might seem like a lot of work, but happy relationships are beneficial in almost every part of our lives, from our mental, physical, and emotional health to our financial and community well-being. So they are worth the extra work. Godman has a variety of worksheets and questionnaires in this book. So if you want to give his method a shot, you're guaranteed that a lot of 
work has been put into making it simple and practical. Gottman recommends intentionally spending time working on your relationship. He recommends at least six hours a week. I know that all seems a little textbookish for something that is supposed to be smooth and enjoyable. That's what the experts have found to be what works. And I'm sure none of us needs to be told that relationships can make our lives really, really miserable if we don't put in the time to make them work. Finally, don't let negativity slide. Better to address it early than to wait until it has turned into something way worse. Let me know what you think. I always appreciate comments and Substack has a nice comments feature right on the article. But if you'd rather keep your comment private, email me. I hope you have a good week.